see y'all. I'm really, really grateful again to be back in this pulpit uh, sharing God's word with uh, people that I love. I want to start this morning um, and I want to end this morning with the same question. I want to start and end with the same question. And that question is, how are you using your power? How are you using your power? How are you using your power? Now, upon hearing that, some of you literally are right now saying to yourselves, what you talking about, Willis? That's for the, old, that's for the older folks in the room. Some of, y'all, some of y'all might be too young to know about that. Go look it up when you, get on, when you get home. Look it up on Google. But some of y'all are saying to yourselves, what are you talking about? I don't have any power. What, 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 what exactly am I supposed to be using, particularly if I don't have any? Well, at City Light, we define we define, or before, before I even say define, but one of our values is the ideal of emptying empowerment. Emptying empowerment, all right? And so we believe that, that the question, how are you using your power, more than likely is appropriate for everyone that walks through the door. And we define power in a couple of different ways. We define power by the positions that we hold in life. Some of you hold positions at work. Some of you hold positions as parents, father, mother, uncle, aunt. Some of you hold uh, positions maybe in school or maybe in your community. You're considered the guy or or the woman that, that we should seek counsel from or we should look for direction from. But we also define power in other ways. We define power by the people that we know, that, that we have connections with. We define power by the possessions that, that we have, your, your time, your talent, your treasure. We define power by the, by the pedagogy that we possess. That is the knowledge and the teaching that we have, the wisdom that we've, 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 we've gathered over time, the information that we've gathered. We define power by the privilege that we carry. All of those things and more are are combined to, to, to make and create power. And at the heart of this church is a growing commitment to, to steward everything that we've been given as a demonstration of love for our neighbors and as love for God. Because he's loved us so unbelievably well. So I ask you again, how are you using your power. Now the question is really difficult in this particular day, in this particular age, the place that we live in, America, the time that we live in, the 21st century, because for one, we live in what is called a low power distance culture, a low power distance culture. We live in what what, what, what Andy Crouch calls a low power distance culture, and this is what he says when he writes about that. He says this, Quote, in high power distance cultures, power is made visible and power is made tangible. You can touch it. And and, and dramatic differences in power are seen as natural, indeed crucial to, to to a healthy society. But in a low power distance culture, on the other hand, visible hierarchy and signs of power are discouraged. Those with power are expected to treat others as equals, not as subordinates. So in a high power distance society, powerful people try to look as powerful as possible. But in a low power distance society, powerful people try to look less powerful than they really are. We live in a low power 
distance society. Part of the reason it's difficult for us to answer the question how we are using our power is because we act like we don't have any. We've become very good in this low power distance culture at masking our power. And as a result, many appear less powerful than ever when in fact they're more powerful than they've ever been. I mean, many of us couldn't pick Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg out of, this, uh, out of this congregation if they walked into this room. They are just unassuming, jean-wearing, hoodie-wearing guys, and yet they're the most, two of the most powerful men in this nation, Mark Zuckerberg being the CEO of Facebook and Bill Gates being the CEO of Microsoft. And most of us think when we say CEO of Facebook, most of us don't even realize how far that extends. We think, oh, so he, he's the social media site owner? It's like, man, he got his hands in way more than that. But it's a low-power distance culture. Bill Gates, oh, yeah, he made windows. Man, he got his hands in way more than that. But it's a low-power distance culture. And this leads to the first issue with thinking about power. By looking to appear less powerful, we don't become less powerful. We just become blind to how powerful we really are. And thus, we cease to hold ourselves and hold one another accountable to how we actually use our power. Most of us in this room don't think we have any power. But the people overseas do. The people in Africa look at you, and they think that you're the most powerful people in the world. In the words of Andy Crouch, power is not healthier when it's invisible. It is just harder to make accountable and harder to make fruitful. We are asking how are we using our power because so many of us have fooled ourselves into thinking we don't have Power. So instead of asking, Lord, what am I doing to serve others with the position that you've given me? We instead are asking, Lord, when are you going to give me that higher position? Instead of us asking, Lord, what am I doing with the knowledge that you've given me? You're, you're asking, Lord, when am I going to get more knowledge? Instead of you asking, Lord, what am I doing to serve others with the privileges that you have bestowed on me? We instead are asking, Lord, why don't, ha- why don't I have as many privileges as the other guy? All of these questions have to be rearranged to judge our power rightly if we are ever going to get to a place where we are willing to ask the question. But there are other reasons why that question, how am I using power, or how am I using my power, is such a difficult question to answer in the culture. And it's because we are a self-centered culture. We not only live in a low-power distance culture, we live in a self-centered culture, meaning that oftentimes many of us have more power than we are willing to acknowledge, more privilege, more opportunities, more possessions, more knowledge, but we also are more self-centered than we care to admit. American 21st century culture carries an insatiable appetite for itself. We created the social media age with hours upon hours of checking our Instagram and our Facebook and our Twitter and our Snapchats, the average person spends two hours of their waking hours on social media platforms. We, we, began, we began the selfie phenomena. We began that. We started that. And I like taking them. But we started that. 
A recent article that I read, it, 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 it shows that, that research, rather research is now showing that our ability to remember details from key moments in our lives is going down despite the fact that the number of pictures we're taking about those moments in our lives are going up. And what did they conclude? They concluded that we're taking too many pictures of the moment, and thus we have divided our attention in those moments between living in them and manufacturing a, a picture to take in them. And so we literally no longer have the capacity to remember the moment unless we get a picture, unless we go back and look at our pictures. We created the do you, right? That, that was us. We made that. You do you, I do me. Because what's what's most important thing? Me. <laughs> you do whatever you want to do, man. Right? I'm gonna do me. Eric Geiger talks about the I generation. That's the generation of of our young people, 24, 25, and and down. Um, and he writes in this well-researched article, 12 observations of the I generation. He says that they are less emotionally connected. He said from 1990 to 2008, the phrase, make yourself happy, more than tripled in Google Books database. The desire not to need anyone and find happiness apart from deep relationships with others is robbing the I generation of, their, of the benefits of community and emotional connection. In previous generations, college students were shamed with words like prove. For the I generation, they're shamed with words like needy or clingy. It's the ultimate shame word because it's like, well, no, I don't need anybody. And before you older people start wagging your fingers at the, at the I generation, understand that the I generation is a product of this generation and the generations that preceded it. See, most generations are the fruit of the generations that preceded them. They are the next version of us. They are who we would have been had we only had us to watch. So whatever we see in them, we must collectively own as part of our baggage. So as it relates to time and talent and treasure and privilege and position and knowledge in our culture, or, 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 rather, or, or rather our cultural capital, our culture carries the tendency to hoard it for itself. Now let me share this with you. That is not new. That's why Paul is writing what we're, what we're about to look at, and that's why I had to set the stage. And we're going to blow through this a lot quicker, but I needed to set this stage to help you understand that when Paul writes this, he's writing to people just like us, but, but, but here's the difference. In Paul's culture, it was self-seeking, but it was self-seeking high power distance, meaning that they displayed their power, they wanted their power to be made known, they dressed the part, they looked the part, and, 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 and not only that, but it was seen as culturally acceptable to grab for power. So when Paul writes this, it's clearer to this group the, 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 the move from arrogance to humility, the move from powerless to powerful. But to us, it's not as clear because we're just as, we're just as much a self-seeking culture, but we're operating in a low-power distance culture as well, which means we act like we don't have it. It all sucks, you know what I mean? I'm just a, 
regular old guy. Are you tracking with that? So again, as we look at verse 3, I want to ask you the question, how are you using your power? We hear a commandment from Paul in verse 3, to re, a commandment to rethink our power. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you now, not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing out of an attempt to gain more power to hoard on yourself or to hoard to yourself. Do nothing out of an attempt to simply gain more possessions for yourself. Do nothing out of an attempt to simply gain more privilege for yourself. Do nothing out of an attempt to simply gain more power to be used by you and you alone. What's crazy about this idea that Paul is giving us this command that Paul is giving us is how easy it is for us to literally use anything to make ourselves greater. Because Paul is speaking this in chapter 2, but he uses this same word, selfish ambition, in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Paul is referencing people, preachers of the gospel. He says this, verse 15 of chapter 1, listen. So indeed, some indeed preach Christ from Envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ, listen, out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my prison, imprisonment. According to a well-known commentary, this, this word, this word selfish ambition, does not show up or, or only shows up rather one other time prior to the New Testament. And that is in the book Aristotle or Aristotle's word politics. And Aristotle uses this word selfish ambition in the following way. Listen, he uses it to describe a greedy grasp for public office through unjust means. In other words, these preachers appear to have been preaching the gospel while Paul was in prison, but not out of love for God nor love for his people, but out of a desire to advance their agenda. So even the preaching of the gospel could be used in ways to just simply try to make oneself great. There is nothing more powerful that we have been given than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here they are using it to advance themselves. It's why cults are so dangerous, because they use a powerful tool to advance their own agendas. It's why the prosperity gospel is so prominent, because they use the most powerful tool to advance and line their own pockets. That's why when people think about church now, they think about preachers taking money, Right? Because they hear the gospel and this powerful, this powerful uh, tool that we've been given, the most powerful tool in all the universe that we have in our possession, and it's being used to do what? Hoard power. So in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to those in the church who he believes to be operating with good motives, and he warns them, do not do this. Don't use anything simply as an attempt to make yourself great. Don't simply pursue you. Don't simply do you. 
but rather in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, life is not really all about you. Now that is shocking for many of us to hear. And news to some of us. But life really is not all about you. Paul is saying others count. Notice how Paul says the issue of selfish ambition and empty glory seeking or vain conceit or vain glory should, notice how he says it should be addressed in humility. In humility, you have to address these things. Are you special? Without question. Yes, you are. You are created in the image and likeness of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a son and or a daughter of God the Father. You are special. But here's the rub. You aren't the only one. And that's what ends up happening in most of our dialogue about us being special is we end up centering ourselves. It's like... Yes, I am special. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We weren't talking about you. I mean, no, no. You're, you're not special. I'm special. No, no, that's not how this works. All that have been created in God's image are special and precious. Paul is saying, don't simply think of yourself and your own interests. Think about how you can use whatever power God has gifted you with to elevate all the others around you that are created in his image and likeness as well. All the others who have been fearfully and wonderfully made. All the others who are already sons and daughters of God and even all the others who potentially could become sons and daughters of God if they would submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Famous Arthur and theologian C.S. Lewis once defined humility not simply or not necessarily thinking less of oneself as much as it is thinking of oneself less. So again, How are you using your power? How are you stewarding your time, your treasure, your talent, your privilege, your position, your knowledge? How are you using it in the interest of others? How much of your time is spent chasing your dreams versus giving others a chance to even have a dream? How much of your talent is spent empowering you versus the weaker among you? How much of your treasure is spent being a blessing to yourself and your family versus being a blessing to others and to their families? This ethic of empowering those who lack power is not bound by the New Testament, though. It's a whole Bible ethic. It's all throughout the Bible. Now, make no mistake, we are no longer under the law of the Old Testament. We are under the law of grace that's found in Jesus Christ. However, our freedom from the law of the Old Testament doesn't exempt us from understanding the ethics that are found in the law. Freedom from the law is freedom from the condemnation that follows in our disobedience to the law, not a license to ignore the law. Are you tracking? So when we look to the law, we oftentimes see God's character and we see his goal for our character. For example, over and over again in the law, we see God's unwavering concern for people in the weakest positions among us. 
there seems to be this kind of shouting that's coming from the law, going on from God saying, saying aloud, these folks matter too. These folks are special to me too. He declares himself to be the protector and the father of the weakest. For example, in Psalm 68 and 5, he says, Father, he calls himself the father of the fatherless. Or the psalmist calls him the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. As a result of his love towards the vulnerable and, and his love towards those with less power, he calls, us, he calls us as his people to love those very people. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse, seven, uh, verse 17 through 19, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and he takes no bribe. He executes justice for who? For the fatherless. He executes justice for who? For the widow, he executes justice for who? He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And then he calls us to that. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, when we define justice, you have to understand how God defines justice. He defines justice in the same terms as righteousness, doing right by people. Not just simply punishing wrongdoing. That's how we define justice most of the time, right? It's like, okay, somebody killed somebody. All right, we got to punish the guy for killing somebody. Or somebody stole something from somebody. Okay, we got to punish the guy from stealing something from somebody. But, but that's, not, that's not justice in the framework of the Old Testament. Justice is not just retri uh, retributive justice or, 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 or punishing the wrongdoing. Justice is rightfully bestowing what was lost. And so when God does justice to the fatherless, to the widow, to the foreigner, he's not just simply interested in punishing people that do wrong by them, but he's interested in making sure that they are taken care of. That's what it means for God to do justice to the weak. And then he says to us, you go and you do the same. He says, love the foreigner because you were once a foreigner in the land of Egypt, is what he tells his people. In Deuteronomy 14, he says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner or the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. It says every third year, take a portion of your, your produce and lay it up for those who don't have. That's how you love them, in other words. He says elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner or the foreigner. It shall be for the fatherless. It shall be for the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather your grapes, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. He says, during harvest, don't strip the harvest bare. But leave some for the weak among you. Again, I ask you, how are you leveraging and using your power, your time, your talent, your treasure? Don't strip it bare. What are you leaving behind for those around you? 
How can we do that not just as individuals, but how can we do that as a church? How do we have to process this? How, how do we have to think through that? Because we got to think through that, right? What, is it, what, is it, what does it mean to, to share our power? And to not just simply say, oh, you know, we're a small church, you know, and so don't have much power to get. No, no, no. How, what, whatever power we've been given, how do we share it for the sake of others? Notice that God grounds his people's motivation for how they treat the less privileged in the reality that they at one point were less privileged. You notice that? It says, remember the sojourner or the foreigner. Why? Because you were once a sojourner or a foreigner in Egypt. And I cared for you and I protected you and I delivered you. So remember them like I remembered you. One of the disadvantages in a culture of abundance and privilege is the inability to see the lack and absence of privilege rightly. And so the farther we are from that humble position, the more difficult it becomes for us to realize our duty to care for those who remain in that position. So many of us haven't been in Egypt. So we don't have any compassion for the foreigner. Are you tracking? Many of us have never seen poverty, so we don't have compassion for the poor. Many of us have never been fatherless, so we have no compassion for the fatherless. And so, and so it's going to take this, the, the work of the Spirit moving in our hearts to, to give us eyes to have compassion for those that are weak among us and for us to say, okay, let me figure out a way to share my power, right? Let me, let me figure out a way to invite people into my home for, 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 for a meal because I know they don't have family uh, for, to, to have that meal. Let me, let me, figure, let me figure out a way to, to share some of my wealth, that whatever wealth I've been given for the sake of advancing the mission of God through, through a missionary or for the sake of helping someone who doesn't have any. Let, let me figure out that way. Let me set some money aside in my budget just to bless people. Are you tracking with that? You say, well, I don't have that much money. Let me set $5 aside. A month. Just so after five months from now, somebody might say, man, I really, man, I really need $20. And I can say, here you go, brother. I got it. Are you tracking? To demonstrate how much he cares for those without power and to show how connected his ethic is to, uh, uh, it, or how connected this ethic is to his character, he even goes as far in his law as to pronounce curses on those who don't handle the less privileged among us rightly. He says, Deuteronomy 27 and 18, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say amen. He says, verse 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. He says, Cursed anyone who doesn't do right by them. Are you hearing that? God cares about them, and so he calls us to care about them. But ultimately, this is a grounding that's not just a good to do, but we find our example in how to rethink power when we look at Jesus, right? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 of that text, he says, Have in this mind, have this, in, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus provides us the ultimate example of rethinking power. He provides an example of how it is to be shared. He provides an example of how it is to be distributed. 
how we ought to consider others and not simply ourselves. Jesus' humility, Jesus's humility started from the very beginning. He comes to earth from two parents who don't even have enough to provide a sacrifice of a lamb in the early ceremonial proceedings of his birth. And so they provide two turtle doves, which is a meager offering or a meager substitute for the lamb. He comes not in the, the five-star five star Ritz-Carlton. He comes in a one-star room. He's born in a one-star room, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in an animal trough. He takes on the condition of not the, the, the most fearful being, but he takes on the condition of the, the, those that he created. He created humanity, and he takes their form and walks among them. During his adult life, he declared that he himself at times had nowhere to lay his own head for rest. He adopted the occupation of a, of a, of a regular carpenter, not a, not a wealthy carpenter, just an average one. During one of his most victorious moments on earth, when he was riding into Jerusalem and everyone was screaming, Hosanna, 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 he was riding in on a borrowed donkey. Even at his death, we see his humbling, exercising, uh, his humbling exercise of restraint when we hear him declaring um, that, he, that, that, that he was, that rather it was finished instead of declaring, hey, angels, come down and wreck this. I'm tired of this. When they seize custody of him, instead of him calling down legions to wreck shop, he said, don't worry about this. This is, this, is, this is what's supposed to happen to me. He was mockingly hung with a poor man's execution device. The cross was an insulting death. As a matter of fact, the cross was called a slave's punishment back then. It was a humbling death and a humbling life for the Son of God who humbled himself just by simply entering this world in human flesh. None of this was his rightful place. None of this was his earned inheritance. None of this was what he should have gotten. None of this was his position in life. All of those are excuses for why we don't share power. But none of that applied to Jesus Christ, and yet he still did it. He was God of the universe. There was no possession that was not his. He owns all of the earth, and yet he did it. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that as he's talking to a church about giving. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he gave. He says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He says, though he was king of the universe, yet for your sake he took on the form of a servant. So that you by his poverty might become rich. This is our example, a king who willingly chose to exercise his divine power to empower others and to be called into, to empower others to be called into a royal family, a God who graciously laid down his own life to make those under his power, his family, and his friends. This is our example. And so I leave you with the reward, and you look in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is how power works in the kingdom economy. In the economy of God, this is how power works in all cases. Those that share it, lay it down, sacrifice it, find themselves elevated. And God serves as the first fruits of that example. We see Jesus that in, in Jesus laying down his life for the sake of others, choosing not to exercise all of his divine right, he is elevated to a place, to, his name is elevated to a name that is above every name. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow. He says similar things to us. Remember the disciples there, they're like, hey, who's the greatest? He said, who's the greatest among us? Remember what he says? "Let let, let, Let he who becomes the servant of all, the one who becomes servant of all, will be the greatest in the kingdom. Last shall be first. First shall be last. Least shall be greatest and greatest shall be least. He flips the economy of this world. The economy of the kingdom doesn't work the way the economy of the world. You can hoard your power as much as you want to. You can hoard all of your possessions as much as you want to. But whenever you see hoarding in the scriptures of power, treasure, talent, you always see condemnation. You see the people with five, one with, the man with five talents, then the man with two, two, two talents, the man with one talent. What happens, to, what happens to the guy that has just one talent? I don't have a lot of them. I'm a small church, right? Goes and hides it, buries it. What does the master do when he comes back? He says, that was a good job. No, he, he, he breathes condemnation on that guy. What about the guy that hoards all of his possessions, fills his barns with goods and, 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 st- and, and st- stacks it high in the barn and then takes a seat, kicks his leg up and says, so you can, you can rest easy now. What happens to that guy? The Lord says, fool. You stacked all of these goods, but now your soul tonight is required of you. What good are those goods now? The man that walks by Lazarus, the rich man in the fine linens, that man doesn't even have a name in the kingdom. And Lazarus, the poorest, the poorest of the poor, is known by God. There is no good end for those that just simply want to gather and hoard our power because that's not how the economy of the kingdom works. Family, our God died and spilled his blood for us. And he calls us as recipients of that sacrifice to go and do the same to share our power for the sake of the empowering of others. Amen? Amen. How are you using your power? By the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, may we all use it right. Amen?